Welcome to the New Faces of Democracy podcast, the show featuring inspiring conversation with people at the grassroots and the grass tops, doing extraordinary things to stand up for our democracy. I'm your host, Nancy Bynum. This podcast celebrates people who are transforming our political landscape by organizing, running for office, or generally striving to make our democracy live up to its promise of a more perfect union. I hope their stories will inspire you to learn more about them or to take action on your own. Head over to newfacesofdemocracy.org for easy links to subscribe, follow on social media, and to get more inspiration. Today's episode with Daniel Katz of the Rainforest Alliance is the first in a two-part environmental series on thinking globally and acting locally. While you probably know that rainforests around the world are in danger, you may not know that rainforest destruction wreaks havoc on the climate and puts us all in danger. You also may not know that you and I and every other consumer here in the United States are culpable in aiding and abetting global rainforest destruction. Daniel and I talk about the connection between rainforests and climate, why deforestation is taking place, and ways our personal choices can help save the rainforests to save the world. And if this episode gets you thinking, be sure to check out part two of the series coming in two weeks, which will be a deep dive into plant-based eating. And now here's my conversation with Daniel Katz. Daniel Katz, welcome to New Faces of Democracy. Thanks for having me, Nancy. So, Daniel, I'd like to start with the obvious question that you must be asked incessantly. Why should we care here in the United States about what happens in rainforests thousands of miles away? Wow, you're right. I have been asked that (laughs) question over the last 35 years, probably 20 million times. So, as you know, I'm a co-founder and board chair of the Rainforest Alliance. And when we started the organization back in 1986, we were originally called the New York Rainforest Alliance. And that was even crazier because people would say, well, I didn't know there were any rainforests in New York. But we started in New York because it was the home of the United Nations, the financial capital of the world, the media capital. And we started it. And the reason people should care is because so much of what we use and take for granted every single day probably has its origin in the rainforest from so many of the fruits and vegetables. It's part of our climatic system. It is connected to our carbon crisis. You really can't go a day or even probably half a day without using some product that had its origin in the rainforest from bananas and oranges to, gosh, possibly the cattle that you might be eating if you're, if you're eating some steak. So we use the rainforest every day. We rely on it. The rainforests are this thin girdle around the equator between five degrees north and south, and over half of the world's species are found there. And unfortunately, we have been losing rainforests at a rapid rate. Over half of the rainforests are already gone, And most scientists would still claim that we are losing numerous species a day to extinction. We all have our hands on the chainsaw. And so we're all responsible. That's a great metaphor. So you mentioned you co-founded the Rainforest Alliance in 1986. And that feels like a really long time ago. And climate change felt much less pressing. I don't even think we talked about it then. We did not talk about the climate crisis back then. I remember... Well, in 1988 or 89, going to hear a young senator from Tennessee, 
give a talk about the climate in the basement of the Senate building. And it was Al Gore, and he gave this little slideshow about why we need to pay attention to the climate, global warming at the time we talked about it. And I was there talking about biodiversity conservation in another room. And I watched the slideshow, and I remember coming out thinking, gosh, this is really important, but I can't do both. We can't say both biodiversity and the climate. Interesting. Wow, he's been ahead of the curve for so long. He invented the internet. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So when you started the Rainforest Alliance, it was really to protect biodiversity. That felt like the most pressing issue at the time. So when we first started, we were actually just doing education to get people to care about rainforest and why we are losing them and, and how it's going to impact the planet. And of course, biodiversity was the main part of it for me anyway. I remember when I was in college and I learned about rainforest deforestation, I said, you know, it sounds so corny, but I would like to be a spokesperson for the people's plants and animals of the rainforest that have no voice. So we started out without any money or experience and just wanted to help. And then little by little, we started creating projects. And one of the first projects we created was a third-party certification, a better way to work with companies and farmers or foresters or growers in the rainforest to look at sustainability, look at sustainable practices, look at best management practices and how we can reduce the negative environmental impacts while still providing the products that people are looking for, predominantly in the developed world, the United States and Europe. like Sure, the consumers. Coffee and bananas and tea and wood products. So we developed this program. It was the first third-party, independent third-party certification program in the world. And the Rainforest Alliance continues to be probably the largest environmental certifier. We certify somewhere between 15 and 20% of the world's coffee and tea and cocoa for chocolate. And we work now in... 70 countries around the world, and you can find products in over 100 countries around the world. We work with over 5,000 companies. Well, I want to get to all of that. I want to get to all these ways that you're helping to solve the rainforest crisis. But first, I just want to talk about the link between rainforest and global climate in a very basic way. And feel free to answer these questions as if I'm a fourth grader, because that's where my memory of what I learned in science stopped. So, you know, I just want to give listeners a better understanding of why rainforests matter for all citizens of the earth. How do rainforests help to regulate climate? How does a healthy rainforest help to regulate climate? Well, a healthy climate should be regulated across the globe. Rainforest, oceans, all different ecosystems need to be healthy. In the rainforest, you have, due to current fortunate circumstances, one doesn't know if it was always like this, but a steady temperature that doesn't fluctuate very much and over, I believe it's 30 inches of rain a year. And because of that, there are so many different species there. Now, when we start to cut down rainforest and burn the rainforest, you emit carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And it is that rapid rate of carbon dioxide heading into the atmosphere that creates what we call the greenhouse effect. Whereas a healthy environment 
you would have a, a nice flow of rain and sun and photosynthesis and everything would work naturally, that burning and that CO2 tends to block out the ability for absorption to take place. And I don't think I'm talking to a fourth grader anymore at this point. However, what's happening now is we've lost so much rainforest that there are claims now that the entire cycle of the rainforest may change. And it may no longer be an exporter of CO2, but may need to get more of it. And it may go from rainforest to a dry forest. And that's very dangerous and very scary because that also means the loss of all of that biodiversity. Right, of course. So you said that obviously when trees are cut down, there's more carbon dioxide released into the air. And that's, is that because I've heard this term carbon sink, I think it's called, where rainforests actually store carbon. So if you cut them down, it's actually this, like, it's more than just cutting down a tree, it's releasing carbon into the air. That's correct. And, and there's an argument about whether or not the big old trees carry more carbon or the younger trees that grow faster and if they're, if they're absorbing carbon, et cetera. I think that it's the older trees that are more important for both the climate and for the environment itself as well because of all the other benefits that come with them. Because it's not just a tree. I don't look at it as just the carbon or the climate. I look at it as that whole ecosystem. And you can have a specific kind of tree. One of the beauties of the rainforest is its biodiversity, that's the variation of trees that you can find there. Whereas here, if you go to a northeastern forest, you may find a few species of trees. But if you go to a, a lush diverse rainforest, you could find a hundred different species of trees in an acre. And each of those trees have particular species that rely on them, birds or insects or other animals that rely on the fruits. And if once you take away the tree, it becomes a cascade of loss. And we want to avoid that loss. Yes, of course. So I read on your website, or the Rainforest Alliance website, that tropical forest loss is responsible for 8% of global annual carbon emissions. That's an enormous number. That's just from deforestation, it sounds like. So it sounds to me like a rainforest that has been degraded or deforested actually worsens the climate crisis, which we've been discussing. So would it be accurate to say that there's, and I'm not trying to just hone in on the climate crisis here, but in terms of discussing rainforests' relation to the climate, would it be accurate to say that we cannot solve the climate crisis without addressing the rainforest crisis, in your view? Not being a climate expert, but... So there are many ways that we can bring our greenhouse gas numbers down, right? Bill McKibben, is you probably have heard of, started an organization called 350.org. That was the parts per million that we thought we needed to maintain as a healthy level for the planet. The number is now well into the high 400s. The quickest, I think, and this is controversial, but the very quickest way that we could probably bring down greenhouse gases would be to get rid of all the cattle in the whole world. I want to talk about that. Hypothetically, <laughs> you get rid of all the cattle, you are going to take away a good deal of our climate problem. There are urban ways to deal with this. There are rural ways. 
within manufacturing plants, we should stop, if we could stop building petrochemical plants in the future, in the United States, even just in the United States, where most of the growth in the petrochemical industry is for single-use plastics, which we don't really even need, that would be a big number. But in the rainforest, you know, the best bets, if I look, we look at, without going crazy and look at geoengineering, keeping standing forests standing. That is the best thing that we can do to maintain and bring down greenhouse gas levels. We can't keep losing trees and forests. That's not even just in the rainforest. That's full stop. We don't recognize the incredible value that trees have provided for the planet. And we, we seem to have no regard for them as we gobble them up for development, etc. And that cannot go on forever without dire consequences. Yes, sure. So let's talk about the pressures that lead to deforestation, the social and economic pressures that are leading people to burn down tropical forests or otherwise degrade them in such a way that they're no longer healthy. Can you tell me about some of those? You'd mentioned cattle. Does that take place, cattle raising? Does that take place in rainforests? Yeah. So the causes and consequences of deforestation have changed over the decades. But for the last many years, the number one cause of deforestation, especially in the New World tropics, Latin America, the Amazon, is from cattle. Cattle for or water buffalo. But in Central and South America, you see cattle as a placeholder. You cut down trees and you show that you're improving your land by putting cattle on it. Or there is narco-trafficking in Central America where the drug traffickers harbor or hold their money in cattle in an area. And they also migrate cattle through the regions and cut down land. So this is a very large problem. Soy, depending on where in the, in the world you're talking about, but soy is also a problem in the New World tropics. In Indonesia, palm, the growth of palm oil has been a problem. So when we talk about wanting to save the rainforest, you really have to look at each particular country and then even go further down to each particular community to see what is taking place in that area. But across the board, you would not be incorrect to say that cattle is a big problem. And the soy that's grown, I think I read somewhere that that's often part of the purpose of it is as cattle feed. Is that right? Uh, yes, for animal feed. In general. Yeah, yes. animal feed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's sort of a double whammy. It's cutting down rainforest to raise cattle, cutting down rainforest to grow the crops to feed the cattle. That's right. We really shouldn't be using any kind of land and food crops for animals. We should be able to find other ways to feed them. The same goes for fish in the ocean. We shouldn't be growing fish you know, to feed fish. We need to find other alternatives. And in both cases, other alternatives exist. We just have to have the will. But just saying we just have to have the will is not easy. No, it's not. Okay, so let's talk about your work at the Rainforest Alliance, your strategy there, the solutions you've come up with, and how it's evolved over the years. As you mentioned, the threats have been changing. So we work with people and nature, and we believe and aspire to have them work in harmony together. We work a lot in tropical agriculture, where 25% of the world's 
climate emissions are coming from. So we try and find best practices or better ways to to work with small-scale farmers and those companies that buy products from them to ensure that they are doing the best they can to help farmers and their families. So we work on human rights and then get a fair price for their product and then find a good market for them. We want those companies to ensure that they are treating the farmers well and we want consumers to purchase products as much as they can and if they need to purchase from certified sources like the Rainforest Alliance. And that's a little green frog that you can see on tea bags and sure. chocolate bars and yeah. I've seen it and I'm embarrassed to say that until talking to you, of course, like, you know, it's nice to see it, but it wasn't a must see in order for me to decide between this product or that product. Why not? Because I just wasn't giving it enough thought. You know, there's a lot of things next to that green frog is a, a GF and a V and a, or, you know, organic sign and something else. You know, there's so much signage on our products and you're sort of going through the store and you're just trying to like pick up your groceries and get home. So what would it take you, someone who hosts a podcast and is very concerned about these issues, what would it take for you to pay more attention? Information like what I'm getting from you. And of course, I I knew it. But until I started researching this podcast, I didn't know the direct connection between... I didn't know the, first of all, devastating state that our rainforests were in. And I didn't know the direct connection between what's on my plate and what's happening. You know, I knew about palm oil and I don't buy things with palm oil, but I wasn't as focused on some other things. So, so I do want to get to that, to our personal responsibility, but I'd love to hear first if, you know, you have any specific success stories that you want to share with us. Well, the Rainforest Alliance has been in business for 35 years. In some ways, I feel like we've been a total failure. You know, I, when I started the organization, I remember leaving the office many days and going, oh, I can't wait till the day where I you know, lock the door and throw away the keys because our job will have been done. And gosh, while we've had successes, every time we win a battle, it is, it is temporary. And every time we lose one, it, it feels pretty permanent. So the Rainforest Alliance works with, as I mentioned earlier, we work with over 2 million farmers around the world. There are certain areas like in the Paten in Central America, where we have been working with local communities for over 20 years to help them come up with non-timber forest products or better managed forestry operations that have the best managed forests in all of the world. So after the war in Guatemala, they created some community concessions. And these community concessions, we work with, have worked with them, and, and they've done an amazing job And there is less deforestation in those concessions than there are in most parks, national parks in Central America. And that's because the communities who live there understand the value of the forests, understand if they manage them for the long term, they're going to get a greater financial reward and they're going to get a better ecological reward as well. And it's really inspiring to see those communities. And they also have other non-timber forest products like the like shate, it's a palm that you'll see on Easter and all of the bouquets and 
in churches. There's a Ramon nut that is a high-protein nut that is now being tested in beer and cookies and different kinds of food products. And the community there, we're helping them. They're partnering with some universities around the United States. And there are a lot of opportunities. It's not easy, but there are different ways to support these local communities, small-scale farmers, to do a good job managing their lands and hopefully rise out of poverty and have a, have a good living. But we need companies to behave well in order to do so. And there are some just standout companies. Like, for example, we work quite a lot with Nespresso, the coffee company. And Nespresso, you know, having been in the field with them and seeing their, the farms that they work with several times, I think they do a really outstanding job supporting the farmers where they buy their coffee beans and looking at every step of the way that they make their coffee. And that includes all the way through until they recycle those aluminum pods. That's actually a huge relief to me. Thank God. I don't just throw out my Nespresso maker. (laughs) No, Indispensable for me. Nespresso is really good. All aluminum is forever recyclable. At least all the aluminum that's ever been made still can still be recycled. Nespresso in in New York spent a lot of money to create its own recycling facility within a larger, the recycling facility. So you can just throw the Nespresso pods in the recycling bin and there's a separate sorter there. So they have, they're making those kinds of investments to make their company have a little of a footprint as possible. So it sounds like it's not environmental protection at the expense of people's livelihoods. It's a market-based solution and everybody wins. The forest wins. That's right. We look at nature-based solutions. People win. More and more, we have to find more nature-based solutions where nature comes first. And nature and local communities have to be at the top of the order. We're starting to look, while we have, for the last three decades, looked at products, particularly, we are now, and over the last couple of years, are looking more at landscapes. There are these large landscape areas that are dotted with forests and then dotted with communities or cities or towns, but around them, we have to look at how can we do our best to create these living landscapes where nature is protected, where communities can thrive. And that is a greater focus, not just for the rainforest science these days, but I think for the, the entire conservation community. Yes. So how would you describe the overall health of rainforests today? I mean, you were saying this is not where you hoped we'd be when you started the Rainforest Alliance in 1986. Is it worse? Yes. Yes. It's a disaster. (laughs) It's a disaster. Partly it's a disaster because in Brazil you have a president who seems to be hell-bent on opening up as much rainforest as possible for development, for quick economic gain as opposed to conservation. So we've gone backwards there. I think it's a tragedy. Some countries right now are paying more attention to conservation like Ecuador, but the problem is that it's politically based. So you get one leadership regime that believes in conservation and then the next one that doesn't. For example, in the United States, I remember when Barack Obama's second term, because in the first term, he really didn't do much for the environment, but in the second term... He started to do more, tried to look at climate. And I felt like we are late, but because of where we are now, we are going to be able to catch up. We're going to make progress. And then we got a new president who 
took us backwards by decades, and that continues to be a big problem. We're still trying to catch up. So this might be too big a question, but I'll give it a shot. And if it is, I can break it down. But what, in your opinion, would it take to stabilize the rainforest crisis? It would take, I believe, setting aside areas of land where there would be no development. At the same time, it would take better relationships and more productivity with farmers and their families, so more support to them to ensure that they are earning a decent living and learning about the value of those of biodiversity, getting corporations to, and maybe others, to support those farmers and families and foresters. And it's going, it would take the will of everyone to recognize the importance of the rainforest as an ecosystem and to not simply buy products that are coming out of the rainforest illegally. And that would include timber or other kinds of wildlife, illegal wildlife trade. We need to stop it all. And there's no, there's no high-tech reason why we can't. It, these are just behavioral choices. It's population, it's poverty, it's ignorance, it's greed. Definitely the last one. That's a, that's a big one. So what areas of the world do you think are at greatest risk right now? Or is it sort of universal? Well, I definitely think the Brazilian Amazon is having a very difficult time. And it is the largest expanse of rainforest that we have, along with in Indonesia and in the Congo. And we're losing Amazonian rainforest. I think the rates, they're higher than they were 10 years ago. We need to get a grip on, on deforestation. And it's very hard because, you know, we're sitting here in the developed world and we care about it. But local politics are ruling the day. And we should continue to put international pressure on governments to promote conservation. But we have to be doing it ourselves as well. Joe Biden can't be allowing more coal plants to open up and to run and then say, hey, stop cutting down the Amazon. Right. Obviously. But you know, and also, as you say, we don't get to vote in Brazil, even I don't even know how democratic those elections are. But we're not citizens of these countries that are engaging in these practices. And of course, they're engaging in them and looking at us and saying, well, you guys do whatever you want to do. But as consumers, it sounds like we have some power. So I'd like to talk about what we should be changing. I mean, it sounds like many of us are unwittingly culpable in this or wittingly, but we're not paying attention and we're helping in the destruction of rainforests. So what should we be doing and what do you do on a personal level? Right. Well, first off, I admit that we are all hypocrites, but being a hypocrite should never get in the way of being on the sustainability journey. We all need to be on the sustainability journey and you can get on whichever entrance ramp where you are right now and go from there. So my theory is that we should all try and live like planetarians. What I mean is, in my mind, a planetarian is someone 
who lives lighter on the planet. So it's not just what you eat, but how you drive. It's your lighting. It's your vampire energy in your apartment or your house. It's all the different kinds of products that you buy and don't buy. You all collectively create a footprint. And a planetarian should try and decrease the footprint because we use so many, in the, we in the developed world use so many more resources than, than those in Africa, for example. I think we use eight times more resources than a Kenyan. Remember that movie, The Gods Must Be Crazy, when it was like the Coke bottle right. was like <laughs> the exactly. greatest thing. Yes, and that, that is true. And, and, you know, I am so guilty. I just got a new iPhone. It's easy. You know, you just hit that one click and we're going to have to stop and recognize what actually makes us happy. Okay. Well, tell me what you do do on a personal level. Obviously, you buy only Rainforest Alliance certified products. As much as I can. Well, we were doing local food waste and composting, you know, in Manhattan. It started back up now. So we, we can do that. My family, you know, knows I'm sort of plastic crazy about, you know, I don't buy bottled water unless I'm in a place where there is no clean water. We, my wife has not had red meat in decades and decades and decades. And I only, right now, I was only eating fish. When COVID started, I started eating chicken. It would, you know, if I were, I'd love to be more of a vegan and I'd love to pay more attention. And this, again, these are privileges. We have the privilege of looking to see where our food comes from and food miles and buying higher quality food or higher quality clothing instead of buying clothes that are going to, you know, fall apart after a year or two. So I totally recognize I come from a first world place of privilege to be able to make these choices. But at the same time, it is we who are in that privileged position who need to act first and we need to take the biggest steps because we are using the lion's share of the resources and creating the greater demands. And again, I am not trying to just make everybody feel guilty because guilt and hypocrisy, they have no place in the world of conservation. It's going to happen. We'll be there, but that's, that should not get in the way of trying to do the right thing. And you can't make up for the past, so start today. Yep, I totally agree. So what are you most proud of in your work at the Rainforest Alliance? And is there anything that gives you hope for the future? <laughs> um, let's see. You know, the Rainforest Alliance has grown a lot. I never expected the organization to work in as many countries as it does. As I said, I, you know, I always feel like I feel bad that we haven't done more. But the Rainforest Alliance is a large organization now. We have over 600 employees working in many, many countries. And I, they're so smart and passionate and doing such amazing work day after day. And so I'm so proud to be associated with people who are that smart. And I never would have, I would have never been able to get a job at the Rainforest Alliance unless, if I hadn't started the organization. <laughs> so, and also for me, I know it's a weird thing, but the relationships that have been made there, like these lifelong relationships and friendships and and the people who work at the organization go on to do amazing things at other organizations. And I think that's fantastic. And so we do it little by little. 
and you know, change, I think a lot about how change works. And the change that we need is incremental and comes at a daily basis. The other change that happens is a shock to the system. It's the hurricane. It's the heart attack. It's the thing that stops you in your tracks and makes you go, oh my God, I wish I had done things differently. But we pay more attention to the a farmer at a time, a tree at a, in a forest at a time. We have to work at that level. And that's what we do. We're a boots in the ground organization. And what about the second part? What gives you hope for the future? Okay, so when I started out working on conservation a long time ago, I rarely run into somebody who's worked in conservation longer than I have, which means I'm old. (laughs) But almost everybody these days knows something about sustainability, about rainforest destruction, about the climate crisis. When I started out doing this, people did not know. So it gives me hope how much awareness there is around these issues and how many innovations. I've been looking at companies that are doing innovative work around environmental issues. And that is so exciting. The problem is that the solutions have not kept pace with the awareness. But I am hopeful that if we can get more people interested and involved, that younger generation will probably save us because they are the ones who recognize that we have handed them, we, me, my generation and my father's generation have handed them a real mess. My father's generation was considered the greatest generation, that post-World War II generation that really developed the United States. And in many ways, they were fantastic. But they also left us a real mess because they, perhaps because they didn't know or perhaps because they didn't care, really did a lot of damage to the environment. And we have to clean up their mess, and our kids are going to have to clean up our mess. I'm hopeful, but I'm also very worried that it's late in the game. And for us to have a chance, or for our kids to have a chance to live a kind of life that I grew up having, a lot of action is going to be needed to be taken very soon. Yes. So I'd like to just finish up and see if you had a few easy tips or takeaways for listeners who want to save the rainforest to save the world. Easy is a kind of a relative thing. I would say that what you eat, where your food comes from, that means food miles. And also we should be trying to eat healthy. I think if you eat healthy, you're actually probably doing the rainforest a world of good. What you buy and don't buy, to not buy impulsive, crappy, cheap plastic items that are going to end up in a landfill in a month and end up living in that landfill for the next several hundred years. I would say you're better off spending time outside, having an experience, enjoying nature, showing that parks matter, that trees matter, that nature matters, and also that these areas of low income where you find more industry, it's not fair that that industry continues to be developed in areas where low income people are living. And we have to find better places for those that kind of industry. And we need to do what we can to create equity 
in the United States and around the world. So those hit first and worst by climate crisis aren't, that they have a fair chance to live a good life. And it is incumbent upon us to recognize that we have to help because we created the problems or we stood by and looked the other way while communities are hurting and suffering. And that's just neither fair nor equitable. And we have to do what we can to remedy that situation. Not that easy, but it's the right thing to do. Like you said, incremental. If everyone just does a little bit, what they can. Pay attention. Yeah. Yeah, pay attention to how, how you live, right? Pay attention to your own footprint and do what you can to ensure that others are not trampled on. Very nicely said. Well, Daniel Katz, thank you so much for your work at the Rainforest Alliance, for being an environmental champion, and for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. New Faces of Democracy is created and produced by me, Nancy Bynum. And in addition to being the host, I'm also the CEO, the CFO, and the administrative assistant. If you enjoyed this episode, please help New Faces of Democracy grow by subscribing on whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. You can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're looking for more inspiration, check out my other profiles at newfacesofdemocracy.org and follow New Faces of Democracy on Instagram and Facebook. Facebook.